Well, obviously, then let's be seated. I would like to invite you to turn in your Bibles, if you would like, to join me to Romans chapter 10. If uh, you haven't been around in a little while, we're in a series uh, looking at some particular areas from the book of Romans, where the Reformation especially brought tremendous uh, light and excitement and a revolution to the church, uh, a revolution of joy and good works and power in preaching. Um, we're heavily relying upon Martin Luther and uh, some of his insights. And uh, this is something I try to do every summer, by the way, is to introduce you to some classic work of the church, some uh, particularly wonderful Christian literature. Now this is more of an overview of Luther using a series from Ligonier. We're actually kind of past that now. I wanted to hit a couple things before we finished up, and one of them is an area where Luther is often criticized, is uh, Luther on mission. Well, before I explain, let me read to you from the Word of God from Romans chapter 10, starting with verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the things, about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does these things shall live by them. But the righteousness of faith speaks this way. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we preach. That if you confess and believe and raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes, the mouth confession is made, believes. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to name of the Lord. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they bear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it's written, how beach the gospel who bring glad tidings of good things. Well, let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we pray that we would be those people of beautiful feet, preaching the good things, the glad news, the good tidings to a world in need. We pray that you would bless that testimony of your people, both here and abroad, that the work of God, of which we just sung, would continue unabated, unhindered, and that the people who sat in darkness should see a great light. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. The Apostle Paul, our author, had become the uh, herald of a man executed as a common criminal by the Roman governor. That was hardly anyone's candidate to be the savior of the world. The message he was appointed to bear was, not to put too fine a point on it, absurd by the standards of that day. Salvation through crucifixion, the, the resurrection of the body, an ethical system that virtually condemns all Greco-Roman standards of 
morality, especially sexuality, I mean, it would have been hard to have conceived of a message less likely to be accepted in that day. Paul says elsewhere, it was a stumbling block to Jews, and the Greeks thought it utter foolishness, but it began to do its work. And as the Christians began to multiply, well, they were immediately met with a heavier burden still, violent opposition on the part of the Jews, which you remember had already, by the time this was written, caused the Jews, Christian and non-Christian, to be expelled from Rome. And then, of course, the official persecution of the authorities was about to come and the religion outlawed. Become a Christian and you make yourself a wanted man or woman. Well, who is going to sign up for that? The prospects of the gospel's success, humanly speaking, was zero to none. But something most unexpected was about to happen, the most amazing thing in the history of the world, as the apostle himself had pointed out, foretold by the prophets. God had said way back to Abraham that in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And the prophets foretold in countless ways that the Messiah would come and that the knowledge of the Lord would cover the earth as the waters would cover the sea and the nations return to the Lord who had made them. And Jesus, having come as the Savior of the world in fulfillment of Isaiah 49, it's too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will give you as a light to the Gentiles, that is the nations, that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. So the Christian vision is nothing short of redemption for the world, reconciliation of its peoples in every tribe and tongue and people and nation. This is the expectation, and more than that, it is something in which we participate. As the Father has sent me, I also sent you, John 20, 21. We are called as Christians to bear the good news, to carry that word to those around us, the glad tidings of good things, and to, call, to bring the whole cause of God, um, to bear it on our hearts, to rejoice in its triumphs, to mourn its setbacks, and to see it uh, advance in the world. Again, Jesus says, as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. Well, a brief overview, of course, of the theme of this chapter. Well, with such a strong biblical emphasis, surely someone will say, why didn't the great Martin Luther have a greater interest in organizing missionary societies and directing foreign missionaries? Well, you may know that although Luther is widely praised and remembered for rediscovering and publishing the biblical gospel, he is often criticized for his lack of missionary vision and activity. In fact, there's even a joke that goes like this. Did you hear about the new Martin Luther doll? You wind it up and it just stands there. Okay, got like two laughs. Uh, it's funny for two reasons. Here I stand, of course, said Luther. Get it? Wind it up and it stands. All right, got like four laughs there. But, of course, somebody would say, <clears throat> it's also kind of funny because uh, he could have done so much more in the way of world missions. Well, people often realize that, uh, fail to realize, rather, that Luther was a great student of the church fathers, and his approach to missions was the same as that of the early church. And when we look back and judge him from 
our, our practices, our standards, what we are doing, perhaps we do so unwisely. Um, did the early church engage in missionary enterprise? Certainly. In fact, they were enormously successful in doing so. But obviously not at all in the modern way, with no missionary societies, with no anthropological studies, with no sociological techniques or anything like that. They had a much more simple, I would say, scriptural and successful approach. And Luther, who taught that approach, should be heard again. As one Lutheran scholar put it, today we've become preoccupied with methods and techniques of mission to the point where the gravitational center of the missionary thrust has perceptibly shifted from God to man. Uh, that is to say, it does seem to be more and more about us and what we are doing. Perhaps, he says, we're in need of a Copernican revolution in missions based on Luther's insights, which will restore the proper center to evangelistic proclamation, even as Luther's original message restored a Christocentric perspective to theology. Well, fancy words, but let me put it to you another way. There was a time that Luther was asked about uh, how <laughs> he was so successful in promoting, his revela- in pro- promoting the Reformation. Uh, he said, really, while I sat and drank beer with uh, Amsdorf and his other friend, the Word did it all. Now, Luther was a busy guy. He preached over 7,000 times. He didn't do too much just sitting around drinking beer. But his point was a good one. Uh, the victory was God's. It was the victory of the Word. Another man speaking to students uh, Philip in Amsdorf, he said, Philip Melanchthon. Another man speaking to the students at Trinity Divinity School made much the same point. Evangelicals today are not having the missionary impact that the last generation did in spite of, or perhaps because of, their sociological techniques. The answer is a return to the word as the source of all true missionary dynamic. Well, That's the introduction to what Luther has to tell us today. Luther had uh, an approach that some people thought was just downright unmissionary. I'll let you be the judge. Perhaps there are some things we could learn from Luther on mission. First of all, his word-centered approach to conversion. A word-centered approach to conversion. Uh, In verse 14, we'll be looking at really just verses 14 and 15 this evening, Paul uh, asks... How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they've not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? Well, Luther could not agree more. He was, of course, a preacher and a teacher of preachers, leaving us some 7,000 plus sermons. And as a preacher and a teacher, he certainly taught and encouraged missionary activity. For one example, in 1523, Luther preached a sermon on taking the gospel to the world from Mark 16, as he was an expository preacher. We've so often said heretofore that the gospel, properly speaking, is not something written in books, but an oral proclamation which shall be heard in all the world and shall be cried out freely before all creatures so that all the world would have to, would have to hear it if they had ears. And he insists elsewhere that if the nations are to hear his word, the preachers must be sent to proclaim God's word to them. So, uh, just pointing out to you, Luther had a very 
simple biblical emphasis. And people don't realize just how radical that was at the beginning of the 16th century. That, those were amazing words in 1520. Why? Well, for example, Luther wrote in his commentary to, in Matthew 28, 18, the Great Commission, Thus you see that the Pope errs and does the people injustice in that he ventures to drive them to faith by force. For the Lord commanded the disciples to do nothing more than to preach the gospel. So the disciples also did. They preached the gospel and left its acceptance to those who would take it. And they did not say, believe or I will put you to death, end quote. Luther drew a sharp contrast to the whole apostolic project of evangelism and missions compared to the vastly unbiblical evangelistic efforts of the Roman Catholic, particularly in the Americas, where there was force and uh, uh, a certain kind of unbiblical enticement. Uh, He he took a word-centered approach to conversion. Uh, A radical idea but one that was to reform uh, all biblical missions in the Protestant world. None of the Protestants continued the unbiblical techniques of the Catholics in the main, at least. Well, this commitment to biblical missions and biblical missionaries and biblical means was very strong in Luther, and it needs to be revolutionary again, I think. Um, I uh, had uh, read to you some time ago... Uh, this little nice article, Feeding Sheep or Amusing Goats, which, I th- which is listed as being authored by Charles Spurgeon. I've just recently come to doubt that it actually is of Spurgeon. But he basically makes the same point about our need to reform our evangelism and missionary approach uh, according to the Bible, but in a very different way. He, he writes, An evil is professed in the camp of the Lord so gross in its impudence, that the most short-sighted can hardly fail to notice it during the past few years. It's developed at an abnormal rate, even for evil. It worked like leaven until the whole lump ferments. The devil has seldom done a cleverer thing than hinting to the church that part of their mission is to provide entertainment for the people with a view to winning them. From speaking out, as the Puritans did, the church has gradually toned down her testimony, then winked at, then excused the frivolities of the day, then she tolerated them in her borders, and now she's adopted them under the plea of reaching the masses. My first contention is that providing amusement for the people is nowhere spoken of in the scriptures as a function of the church. If it's a Christian work, why didn't Christ speak of it? Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Mark 16, that's clear enough. So would it have been if he'd added, and provide amusement for those who do not relish the gospel. No such words, however, are to be found, and it did not seem to occur to him. Then again, quote, he gave some apostles and some prophets, some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the work of the ministry, Ephesians 4. Where do entertainers come in? The Holy Spirit is silent concerning them. Were the prophets persecuted because they amused the people or because they refused? The concert has no martyr role. Again, providing amusement is in direct antagonism to the teaching and life of Christ and all his apostles. 
What was the attitude of the church to the world? Ye are the salt, not the sugar candy, something the world would spit out and not swallow. Short and sharp was the utterance, let the dead bury their dead. The Lord was an awful seriousness. Now, had Christ introduced more of the bright and pleasant elements into his mission, he would have been more popular when they went back because of the searching nature of his teaching. I do not hear him say, run after those people, Peter, and tell them that we will have a different style of service tomorrow, something short and attractive with a little preaching. We will have a pleasant evening for the people. Tell them they'll be sure to enjoy it. Be quick, Peter. We must get the people somehow. Jesus pity sinners sighed and wept over them, but never sought to amuse them. Oh, it goes on. You get the, the gist of it here. Uh, he's asking the question in his day, certainly needs to be asked again in our day, uh, what are we winning them with and what are we winning them to? Are we using biblical apostolic means, or have we got a new pope, uh, the, uh, the pope of the uh, circus director or the uh, sports referee, the three-ring entertainer, what, uh, something that approaches the whole matter in a rather unbiblical way. Luther had a radical commitment to biblical missions, biblical missionaries, and biblical means. I receive regular solicitation about supporting various uh, sports evangelistic ministries, about the Jesus film missionary work in the developing world. Uh, Don't get me wrong, I'm very glad that people come to the Lord through such means. I'm thankful for their salvation. I am encouraged that Christ is preached. I rejoice. But that being said, I, I think that missions ought to be done in a biblical way even through the lively preaching of the world, the word. There's this whole matter also of the second commandment, whether the Jesus film is getting people to worship by showing them an image, something also very common in Roman Catholic missions then as now. But simply to ask the bigger question here that Luther asks, are we to be conducting a word-centered conversion approach, or do we have a better idea, one that will be brighter or more enticing to the people somehow. Luther just took a back-to-basics approach, that of the early church. Why don't we try what God says to do and not try to be wiser than him? Well, you'll ask me then, why didn't he send out missionaries? Well, it's not exactly true that Luther sent out no missionaries. Hundreds of preachers were trained and went out from Wittenberg to spread the gospel all over Europe, which you remember was in so many places still in utter darkness. That was understandably the first priority of the day. Luther did write and preach about foreign missions, words that would be taken up in other generations. But in the 16th century, in the early 16th century, people's greatest burden was to bring the gospel to their own church, to their own town and brothers and countrymen, which had never heard it. Luther's solution was to train gospel preachers. Uh, My dad was from Scotland. The gospel came to Scotland through Patrick Hamilton, who'd been trained by Martin Luther uh, and was burned for it, by the way. So we must be reminded that uh, missionaries in the modern sense were um, looked rather different uh, as the need called for in the 16th century. But... Luther uh, was right to remind us, even from this passage as he preached on it, that 
what we need are faithful, authentic preachers. It is essential for the spread of the gospel. I will also point out that people often point to the fact that Luther taught that the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, make disciples of all, go and make disciples of all nations. Luther said that that was fulfilled by the apostles. It was given to the apostles, and they, did, they fulfilled it. So they said, therefore, Luther, who thought it was already done to, by the apostles and fulfilled by the apostles, uh, didn't have any emphasis but they don't realize that Luther was a great reader of the early church fathers. That's where he got so much of many of his doctrines of Augustine. And so many of the early fathers had the very same interpretation, that the Great Commission was given to the apostles and fulfilled by them. Well, if the early church had that idea, did they still carry on missionary work? Yes, based on many other passages. And Luther had the same opinion, right or wrong. So just because so many in the early church also read the Matthew passage and said that was given to the apostles, which they carried out, it doesn't mean they didn't believe in missions or conduct them. They just did it from many other passages. And one of, a couple of other important things need to be said here, too. None of us can evangelize unless we know what the evangel is. What could be more motivating to missions and biblical evangelism than knowing the gospel? This was what Luther gave all of his weight to teaching. And also translating the Bible into the language of the people. We take this for granted as part of the missionary, emphasis, missionary enterprise. That's, because, that's Luther's legacy. Uh, scholars write, throughout the history of the church, Christians have viewed the translation of the Bible into the languages of the world as an indispensable foundation for the sustainable mission of God. And the translation of the Bible from the original into the common languages, first of Europe, very high on the Reformers' agenda. So it was in 1521. Uh, Luther had just been excommunicated. He's hiding out in the Wartburg Castle. What does he do when he has a few minutes to himself? He begins to translate the whole New Testament into Latin, from, I'm sorry, into German. And it was published a year later, the first edition, a total circulation of 3,000 copies were printed and distributed. Luther had translated the whole New Testament in 11 weeks. He devoted tireless energy then to uh, its uh, revision, to the rest of the uh, Old Testament work as well, which was more of a cooperative effort, in order that, as he said, any plowboy could hear and read Christ's word and know it better than the priest. Absolutely essential. Where do we get that idea from? From Martin Luther. Absolutely essential. Well, of course, from the Bible, but it had been forgotten in that day. Elsewhere, Paul said, I make known to you, the brethren, the gospel that was preached to me was not according to man, for I received it not from man or from, was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. And the progress of the gospel and the victory thereof in the book of Acts is often called the progress or victory of the word, that the word of the Lord grew and prevailed mightily. And this is when Luther said, the word did it all. This was his approach. The, the word needs to be translated and disseminated and preached 
And so the early church had devoted themselves to that word, preaching it in the synagogues and congregations on the Lord's Day, in the open air, in the marketplace, teaching it daily in classes and uh, instructing in homes, giving their testimony, telling their friends and relations. And although Luther had a very high view of the ministry, he also encouraged every single person to do exactly the same thing. Um, I read uh, a wonderful autobiography by Graham Miller, a man who had great success in missions and evangelism and standing for the Word of God in uh, Australia and areas in the South Pacific there. He had a very perceptive comment. He says, I can tell just by listening to people pray what their view is of the Word of God. Have they received and treasured it as the very Word of God? If so... If people think, this is God's word, it suffuses their thoughts, their words, their hearts, their petitions. Jesus had said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. That is to say, when people understand this is God's word, it it comes in in power and goes out in prayer and comes out in teaching and speech and witness. Um... Hence, Calvin says, the Holy Scripture will never be of any service to us unless we are persuaded that God is the author of it. And so if we are to fulfill the Lord's mission and see a victory for the city of God, we need to receive the gospel as it is in truth, the word of God. Believe it and act accordingly. This is Luther's legacy, a word-centered approach to conversion. My longest point, you'll be glad to know. Second, much more briefly, um, Luther also advocated a church-centered approach to missions, a church-centered approach to missions. Uh, How shall they hear without a preacher, and how shall they preach unless they are sent, asked the apostle. Well, Luther emphasized what he called, quote, the overall mission or gospel orientation of the individual visible congregation. That that is to say, your congregation is what we would call a missionary society. Uh, We we live in a day when churches get mission statements, right? They hire big consultants to craft mission statements, and they they all tend to sound somewhat the same when they come out here. But I I always wonder about that, because didn't the Lord give us a mission statement somewhere? Um, It just rubs me the wrong way, perhaps, here. But as Luther put it, This is what Peter means when he says, you, ye, are a royal priesthood. That Luther says we are elected thereto and we preach and show forth the excellencies of Christ. Hence, there must always be witnessing. That is to say, the church as a whole in all of its members is, in our terms, a missionary society. That's the church's mission. Uh, That was the, again, the secret to the rapidly spreading Lutheran movement, town to town, place to place, in a a more organic way. Uh, Luther himself didn't organize and didn't send things out. Uh, From congregation to congregation to congregation, it just went. In another sermon in 1533, he says, the noblest and greatest work and the noblest and most important service we can perform for God on earth is bringing other people, and especially those who are entrusted to us, to the knowledge of God, by the Holy Gospel. I think I cut it out, but he he recognizes that this could be your life. It could mean your life to do this in that day, right? And and he said, uh, 
This, this is our calling, not to be ashamed of our Lord. That the, that the average, everyday believer is a soldier in the great army in the advance of the gospel in Luther's mind. Luther, where did he get that from? Early church, where did, he get, where did they get that from? Right here. Luther also said it's the church that serves as the catalyst, his words, as the catalyst and base for missionary outreach. Well, do you need a missionary society to send out missionaries? Maybe for, maybe for some things, that coordination is very helpful. Uh, Luther just looked at the New Testament and said, you know that congregation in Antioch? They sent out missionaries, and that was his plan as well. He taught it. He said, now go and do that likewise. Consequently, there was no need for him even to think about a separate mission organization that would work alongside the church. I, I, I came across uh, something in the uh, uh, early church history about what they would do back in the, in the, the days of uh, Rome while it was still illegal. This is the uh, second century. You know, individual congregations in the city would go and have um, little uh, preaching and worship services in all the towns and villages around. They just, they, they saw themselves at this, in the city as the missionary society for their region. So uh, they just, as part of their average work, so many of them uh, sent forth uh, preachers and witnesses and worshipers, uh, also taught catechumens to be able to help new believers to be instructed in the faith. Well, I say uh, Luther simply read the, the fathers, read the Bible, said, good enough for them, good enough for me. Philip Schaff, that magnificent church historian, which I, whom I hope you know, uh, German Reformed historian of the previous, uh, over 150 years ago now, I guess, he says, it's a remarkable fact that after the days of the apostles, no names of great missionaries are mentioned until the opening of the Middle Ages, when the conversion of nations was effected or introduced by a few individuals, such as St. Augustine in England, St. Boniface in Germany, and so forth. There were no missionary societies, no missionary institutions, no organized efforts in the anti-Nicene age. And yet, in less than 300 years from the death of St. John, the whole population of the Roman Empire, which then represented a civilized world, was nominally Christianized. To understand this astonishing fact, we must remember that the foundation was laid strong and deep by the apostles themselves. Christianity, once established, was its own best missionary. It grew naturally from within. It attracted people by its very presence. It was a light shining in the darkness and illuminating the darkness. And while there were no professional missionaries during their whole, devoting their whole life to this specific work, Every congregation was a missionary society, and every Christian believer a missionary, inflamed by the love of Christ to convert his fellow men. The example had been set by Jerusalem and Antioch and by those brethren who, after the martyrdom of Stephen, were scattered abroad and went about preaching the word, end quote. So I don't think that our church should get rid of its board of foreign missions. I don't think that missionary societies are useless. Please don't misunderstand me. But Luther, who didn't know any of those things, had a very strong biblical interpretation that, that if you just look at, at how the church 
progressed. They were, they were congregations on mission. Every member a soldier. Every, what did it say? Every congregation a missionary society. Every Christian believer a missionary. That is the mindset that he sought to inculcate in the Reformed churches. There's a passage in General Bradley's memoirs of the Second World War where he describes a conversation he had one day with George Patton. They were in Sicily and standing on a hill surveying the advance of Patton's great army across the terrain. And there across the hills came the tanks and the heavy guns and the trucks and the jeeps and the soldiers as far as the eye could see. And Patton turned to Bradley and said, Brad, there's nothing in all of human endeavor that compares to war. Look at that. Where else would you ever see something so vast, so grand in scale as an entire army moving across the face of the ground? Patton loved it for its scope. He was accused of loving war because of the opportunity it provided for such great endeavor, for such achievements of historic proportion. Well, brothers and sisters, Patton's war was decidedly very... um, uh, well, it was very temporary. It decided temporal things, and in victory, it brought death to many. My point is simply that nothing in the world, in truth, is so vast in scale. Nothing is truly so heroic in its proportion, so welcoming of historic achievement as the army of God fighting to bring life, life to the world. How much more glorious is that? And we need, as I say, to hear this idea of Luther again, uh, that the whole army should be uh, filled with every believer under the great banner of Christ. That was his vision. Well, third and most briefly of all, he had a grace-centered motivation for evangelism. As is written here, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring good tidings, glad tidings rather, of good things. Uh, the natural joy uh, that one has as being the bearer of good news. We learn from Luther this, that in the final analysis, the motive for evangelism and missions must be not legalism, but love. Duty must melt to delight, that when a Christian has come to know the Lord, Luther says, the Lord who has redeemed him from death and brought him into his dominion and heritage, his heart is thoroughly permeated by God, then he would like to help everybody attain this blessedness, he says. For he who has no greater joy than the treasured knowledge of Christ, so he begins to teach and exhort others, confesses and commends his blessedness before everybody and sighs and prays that they too may come to this grace the Christian, he says, has a, relent- has a restless spirit while enjoying rest supreme. That is God's grace and peace. Yeah, we rest supreme in God's grace, and that makes us restless for others, he says. Therefore, he cannot be quiet or idle, but is forever struggling and striving with all his powers as, as one living only to spread God's honor and praise farther among man, to cause others and to receive the spirit of grace and through it also to help him pray. A good tree, as Luther was fond of saying, bears good fruit naturally. You don't have to waggle your finger, he would say, to instruct it. And so he says that 
we, we must uh, obtain a grace-centered motivation for evangelism that our joy must overflow. Well, in conclusion, a question arises about this passage Luther wrote, Go ye into all the world. So as to how it is to be understood, since the apostles certainly did not visit all the, all the world. That is to say, Luther recognized the command was given to them, but the apostles, for all their going, did not visit all the world. He writes, no apostle came here to us and to many a heathen island that has since been discovered where the gospel has never been preached. Yet the scriptures say, quote, their sound went out into all the earth, Romans 10 18. I answer, their preaching went out into all the world, though it has not yet come into all the world. It went out into all the world, it has yet to come into all the world. He says it's like, uh, it's like ripples uh, from a rock. The rock goes and the ripples go into all the lake, but they have not yet come into all the lake. The going out has begun and continues, although it is not yet completed. The gospel, however, will be preached ever farther and wider until the judgment day, when this preaching shall have reached all parts of the world and shall have been everywhere heard. Then will the message be complete and its mission accomplished. Then will the last day also be at hand. And then the end will come. I conclude with uh, the uh, first uh, verse of Luther's hymn that he wrote in 1524, which he based on Psalm 67. Luther, a big fan of the Psalms, and uh, sought in so many of his hymns simply to uh, repackage the Psalm or uh, use it as the, as the beginning of a wider reflection. Well, here he is on Psalm 67, uh, a hymn which I hope that uh, one day we'll be in hymnals again. May God bestow on us his grace with blessings rich provide us, and may the brightness of his face to life eternal guide us, that we his saving health may know his gracious will and pleasure, and also to the heathen show Christ's riches without measure. And unto God convert them. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we also pray that you would bless us and call